morning and welcome to Emmanuel this morning. Welcome to this time of worship. We trust that as God has called us here, uh, we'll be blessed by the experience of joining together. Uh, we have communion today, so if you're a part of the committed community of Jesus Christ, please participate in the meal that he offers us, and uh, that'll come a little later in the service. As we prepare to worship, let's go to God in prayer and seek his blessing. Lord Jesus Christ, we gather as your people, and we pray that the privilege of worshiping you freely would not be lost on us. We pray that you would take whatever it is that we come with this morning, that be eager anticipation or painful sorrow or all other host of emotions, that you would meet us in this place at this time. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would actively engage ourselves as best we can in what you are saying and doing through word and song. And we pray, Lord Jesus, most of all, that your spirit would touch our hearts and let us know that you are real and true and good and loving. And to this end, we pray, come Holy Spirit. Amen. As the people gathered by God, we receive his word of greeting, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells among us. Amen. So though I sent out seven passages this week, I am going to read um, a different one. And uh, John 3.16 will sound very familiar. This is 1 John 3, verse 16, which, interestingly enough, in the way those things happen, sounds a fair bit like John 3.16. Hear the word of God. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So if any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. So we are at the end of this relationship series, the uh, final small group for those of you who weren't already in a small group before will be taking place at four o'clock this afternoon to have a conversation um, about this sermon on homosexuality those are the things we've talked on before and i can tell you without um, hesitation that this is by far the most difficult sermon in the series for me whether it is for you of course you'll have to judge for yourself and it's sort of like this it's pretty clear that we collectively are all against pornography. We're on the same team there, right? Nobody's excited about abuse. Everybody's against abuse. Homosexuality is probably the biggest hot-button topic in the church right now. I don't know that it is in the world, but it certainly is in the church. It is in our denomination. And so as I was thinking about all those other hard topics, I can honestly say that even on Sunday mornings when I was prepping, like last week for a tough sermon about abuse awareness, I was actually thinking ahead about this message and how do I present this? Because the hardest part of this is I already know that I'm going to offend a whole bunch of you. And that's hard to do. And I don't do it lightly, obviously. But I know that we think differently about this. And it doesn't really matter which way I would go in this sermon. I would offend some people. In fact, probably the most offensive thing I could do is try to please everybody because then everybody would go, we don't even know what you're talking about or where you're landing on this. And so... That makes this really hard for me. Such that I thought to myself, 
why don't I just not do this? I can easily come up here and say, sorry, folks, I got nothing. And go home. I need a day off. Right? You get to do that once in a while. Why can't I just do that? But we're not going to do that. Because this is what God revealed to me as I was standing in the front row processing this. He said, Eric, what you're doing today is a little bit like what it would be like to come out of the closet as a homosexual. And it's probably pretty important that in this world, the community understands some of those true dynamics and then tries to deal with it in terms of scripture and community and love and all those kinds of things. The latest language, I think, are these letters, LGBTQ. We talk about the LGBTQ community, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, queer. Sometimes there's a plus behind that. I'm not up to date on a lot of things. I'm not up to date on that stuff either. But this tells us if you can put five letters together like that and everybody knows pretty much what you're talking about, that we're dealing with something that's in our world, that's in our lives, that we're connecting with it. Those are the folks we're talking about today. For some of you already just allowing those five letters to be there is like, come on, can't we? Who knows, however you want to feel about that. Right? Recognizing this is a tough conversation. Our synod, which is the broadest assembly of the Christian Reformed Church, our denomination, and our classes, our regional assembly here in the Toronto area, are dealing with the question, how do we minister to people who are same-sex attracted, who are homosexual, who are lesbian or gay, and so on. And I want to tell you that, since I go at least to the classes meetings, those are the hardest meetings in my world. And they're not hard because I don't like any of the people there. They're hard because when we have this as a, a sort of, these are political meetings, right, in the best sense of that term. When we have this as a political topic, it's sort of like the topic is up here. But for me in day-to-day ministry, being lesbian or gay is, is right down here in your personal life, right? And my plan and strategy so far has really been just to ignore the topic on the political level, to get as little involved as I can in terms of classes and synod, and only deal with it in terms of if somebody comes to me and we need to talk about homosexuality because it's personal and real to them, I will talk about it there. I was quite happy with that point of view. I think I'd still be happier with that point of view and that perspective. I'd like to just do this one-on-one, because one-on-one I can feel where you are at and I can go with you, because that's really the way I minister to you in almost every circumstance. But, alas, apparently, God decided I should come out of the closet and state my case about how we need to think about these things as a community. This stuff is personal. I know that among you, because you've told me, there are many people who are dealing one way or another with themselves or somebody around them who is struggling with sexual identity. Right? And the little bit of fear that I fear coming up and talking about this as a topic... I can't imagine what it would be like to try and share. So you may know that most people who know that I'm a pastor presume that I would be totally unaccepting of anybody who's homosexual. Right? That's our world, world culture. If I go to McCarty Court, right, nobody there is going to assume, if I tell them that I'm a pastor, that I'd be a good, safe person to talk to about their questions and realities about their sexual reality. Right? So when somebody does actually begin 
with a lot of promptings from some friends to share. That's a holy moment. This has been a personal topic for me for a long time. I have known, um, and I'm just going to talk about ministry people that I know. So I know somebody in ministry who is same-sex attracted, but nonetheless um, he married a woman, has children and grandchildren, and as far as I can tell, they're doing pretty well, right? Possibly unusual, but it's real. I also know somebody who I didn't know was same-sex attracted, did get married, didn't have children, and then it blew up because he couldn't, he wasn't honest along the way. He struggled, he fought, you can just imagine, right? And then a whole bunch of stuff. I actually spoke with his wife not that long ago and felt her pain. And then there's a person with whom I was speaking recently, and as I listened to them, my leadership radar went off, and I thought, this person, I really need to tell this person to go into ministry. And then further in the congregation, they told me that they are same-sex attracted. And I thought, hmm, you'll have a rough road. You have your own personal stories. So the sermon, the next line is going to tell you that I'm borrowing the sermon from somebody. Peter Slavstra, by the way, in in, uh, New Hope Fellowship, Curtis, Ontario. I emailed him and said, Peter, I heard your sermon about two months ago. And then as I was planning this one, I had some stuff running through my mind. I think some of that might have come from Peter. Then I listened to his sermon again. It was so good of a sermon that I realized everything I had was actually from him. So I thought I better give him credit. This is actually his sermon, including this illustration. I'm just going to tell you, and Peter, if you're listening later online or something like that, I think I'm telling this story better than you are. I just want to say that, Peter. (laughs) You can tell him I said that if you want. So Peter starts by saying, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, many years ago, he said it was 1996, For the Promise Keepers clergy event, there were 40,000 pastors in the, whatever the Atlanta hockey arena, basketball arena is called. Anyone know what that one's called? Doesn't matter. Check it if you knew. So imagine that, right? Terrifying. 40,000 pastors all in the same, all in the same building. And Max Lucado gets up to speak, and I know many of you have probably heard of Max Lucado. He's a wonderful writer and speaker and preacher. And he tells the story of, of two pastors coming together, and this is sort of what happens, right? When a pastor meets, so what denomination are you? Oh, okay, you're Christian form. Yeah, I'm Christian form. That's cool. All right, way to go, right? Are you uh, pro women office or against women office? Pro women office, cool. All right, yeah, we're on the same page. All right, right? And do you use the NIV or do you use the TNIV? Oh, we use the NIV. All right, I do too. Way to go. And we shake hands, right? And he goes on and on and on. And he tells a story with a whole bunch of illustrations of that. And he says, the last one they said was wood pulpit or glass pulpit. The guy goes, glass pulpit. Oh, I, I'm not sure we can talk anymore. The point being, of course, we can't let one issue, this is true for the election on Tuesday and for church, you can't let one issue shape how you live in community as, un- as, as a unified body of people. Our unity, by the way, has nothing to do with the fact that we agree on everything. It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus Christ agrees on us. It's his unity. He loves all of us. That's what makes us the church. It's easier when we all agree. I wish you all agreed with me on everything. Apparently that's not going to happen. All right? But let's understand, right, that even as tough and emotional and difficult and all those things, and personal, the topic is homosexuality, has no right to undermine the unity of the body 
And so that if you find yourself disagreeing with me over the course of this day, please talk to me about that. Please do that in a wonderfully mature manner. Thank you very much. Right? But let's be on this journey together. Because really all I really want to do today is get this conversation going. Because it's already happening. And unless we think about it out loud together, right, it's going to happen in the, in the cracks. Okay? So giving credit, I gave credit already to uh, Peter Slofstra. I'd like to give some credit. I listened to a piece by Nicholas Waltersdorf, who, if you know big names in Christian Reformed thinking, he's one of them. If you don't know, then it doesn't matter, right? Um, but he, he gave a piece that really um, backed up what Peter said and what I'm going to say and was really helpful to me. And I can give you links to those if you want to hear better versions of what I'm going to say. So there's three points of view within the church on homosexuality. The first one is that homosexuality is disobedience, and as disobedience, people who feel same-sex attraction should repent, and when they repent, then it should go away. The second is that homosexuality is a disease. It's certainly something you've been born with, but as a disease, you don't accept it, you fight against it, and you try and find a cure. All right? And the third point of view, also held within the church, is that homosexuality is merely a difference, right? That it's neither a disease or disobedience, but it's just a different way that people are created um, in terms of sexual orientation. And so we need to then simply accept them. Okay, so it's very important as we start to understand that in the church, certainly in the Christian Reformed Church with which I'm most familiar, these points of view are held strongly and in abundance kind of all over the place, all right? Remember the beginning of this series, I talked about two books. We were talking about um, God. That was the easiest sermon in the series. I remember I went home and Ruth Ann said to me, that was a really easy sermon for you to preach, wasn't it? It was just kind of all my top shelf stuff that I could pull out at any time. It was the opposite of this sermon. It's kind of where I'm going with that. The two books that we have are General and Special Revelation. This comes out of the Belgic Confession, Article 2. So it's a very Reformed thing. All right. Not all churches work with this kind of general and special revelation thing. And general and special revelation are roughly equivalent to science and the Bible. Okay, the reason we have Christian education all the way up to the postgraduate level is because we believe that our faith, um, our faith is both driven by the Word of God, but also by the creation as we study it, as we do science, or as we, as we just simply do school kinds of things, and that those two things are all from God, and they kind of need to come into, into agreement. So back then I told you, back at the beginning of the series, I told you about the geocentric, heliocentric kind of a conversation, right, that based on Galileo's and Newton's science and so on, we changed our perspective that, though the Bible seemed to suggest that the earth is the center of the universe, probably everybody here agrees with me that the sun is actually the center of the universe, all right, that the Bible wasn't talking about that, they changed their point of view. Over the course of history, we've had similar conversations about things like slavery, about the way we deal with divorced people, Right? and the role of women um, in our community. That's an awareness in our lifetime as well. So, some stuff from General Revelation. In 1948, the last time the Cleveland Indians won the World Series, <laughs> the Kinsey Scale also came out. Kinsey Scale is basically this. There's a little test online. You can take it if you want. It helps you determine, you probably don't need it to understand this, right? that you can be completely heterosexual, you can be completely attracted to same-sex, completely homosexual means same-sex, right? Or you could be somewhere in between, 
right? So those letters, LGBTQ, also recognize that there's, there's a range of sexual reality that people experience, all right? And from what I've seen and heard and learned and talked about with people, you learn where your attraction lies pretty early in life, right? Most people will tell you when they do come out of the closet, as we call it, when they do share their true realities, that I knew this really, really early on. Right? They'll also tell you, of course, that I knew immediately, if I was same-sex attracted, that I better not tell anybody. Because maybe if they told the first person, right, they're going, whoa, that was not the kind of response. I was just telling you what I'm feeling. Right? And they got the response, no, you don't. Right? That dynamic is absolutely important for understanding this kind of conversation because we, of course, are the church and we want to embrace people and encourage them on their journey, whatever our official beliefs are. Right? We want to love them and embrace them and understanding how incredibly painful and shame-based that conversation is for everybody right, is very important. So the Kinsey scale. Then in 1967, the year I was born, thank you very much, homosexuality was decriminalized. So early, early, early in my life, that's how long ago only, right? So just before I was born, homosexuality was illegal. You'd be put in jail for being homosexual. I'm not sure how often they did it back then, but still. And then 1996, same year I was at Promise Keepers with the clergy, the Human Rights Code changed to include that you may not be discriminated against on, base, on the basis of your um, sexual orientation. 1996, not that long ago. And then in 2005 in Canada, same-sex marriage became legal. So you're seeing, basically what I want to show you this is, is that in our world, and this is through right, scientific, psychological kind of studies and those kinds of things, our world is rapidly and recently changing its perspective on homosexuality. All right? So it didn't matter if you were in the church or otherwise 300 years ago. Everybody had the same opinion. Homosexuality is wrong. Right? We're allowed to abuse them and misuse them and all those kind of awful things. Okay? It's a recent growth. So now special revelation, which I'll do a lot more on because it's, of course, the thing I'm trained in, not in science. So there are only seven passages. I found that a bit of a surprise. There's only seven times in the Bible that it actually talks about homosexual relationships. It's a reasonably low number, in case you didn't know. And the first two are Genesis 19 and Judges 19, which are incredibly parallel stories. So I'll just take a quote from Genesis 19, which says, They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Right? And often this passage right, is, is used as a... Uh, see, clearly God is completely against this. But what's going on here is simply rape. Right? We need to be really careful. And my, one of my most conservative present colleague friends in ministry said to me, Eric, of course we have to have a conversation about homosexuality. What the Bible talks about as homosexuality and what we talk about as homosexuality are incredibly different things, right? That's where this conversation needs to take place. This is the most obvious example of that, right? Sodomy comes from the word Sodom and Sodom and Gomorrah story, which is the story we're in right here, right? Because that, of course, is not about a same-sex attracted couple deciding that they want to commit to each other, right? That's about rape, as we'd already covered last week, we're obviously all against rape. That one's simple, right? As Peter Slofstra said, and when I read I go, whoa, you ever write about that? In fact, this next slide I'm going to show you, when I talked a little bit about this with my McCarty friends on Thursday, one of them said, yeah, but what about that line from Lot? Here it is. Look, says Lot, 
I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. So I'm a little bit more offended by that. Right? And so, since Lot's the good guy in this story, he never quite reaches that scale. Right? This story clearly isn't helping us understand what are we going to do with people who have same-sex attraction all their life and decide, I I can't change how that is. What am I going to do with myself? We're not going to use this story to make that decision because we hardly want to suggest to them that you're all rapists. Okay? Important story, not for this conversation. Then you have Leviticus 18, verse 22, and 20, verse 13, which are somewhat similar. They're part of the Levitical Code, it's called. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They'll be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, I'm sure... Sorry, I sort of feel like I set you up when I sent out these passages this week because you read this and you go... Well, there it is. Not much to say anymore on that. However, as my friend Peter taught me, scholars on any of the positions on homosexuality, disease, and the other two that I can't remember all of a sudden, right, all recognize that the Levitical Code is a collection of teachings that we don't hang on to on a full scale. We have decided along the way, all kinds of these, that we decided, yeah, we don't do that one anymore. This is my favorite one because I use it regularly here uh, during the week when the Adventist school is here. So an Adventist school is a school that believes that Saturday is the Sabbath. That's a whole different sermon, but they're probably right because that's what God said, Saturday is the Sabbath, different conversation. So I asked them why. They said any Old Testament law that Jesus didn't expressly fulfill or change or adjust, we keep. And I said, aha, I got one for you. I said, and that's why I'm wearing my jacket, by the way. There's a law in the Old Testament that says you may not put two different types of material sewn together. I'm doing that today. You must put me to death. It's part of the Levitical Code. If you get mad at your parents in the Levitical Code, you must be put to death. All right, now there's a whole bunch of things we still do, so we're not going to pretend that we don't do any of the Levitical Code. But we have adjusted it and accepted it really based on the rest of Scripture, which is how we always interpret Scripture, right? We never take one verse in one spot and say, that does everything, right? So, for example, if I get to argue with people about the um, rapture, right, and I say, well, find me the passages. And I'll say, so you've got one spot that sort of kind of gives you that idea of the rapture, particularly Revelation 20, right? And I said, and you base your entire system based on that. I said, I just find that a little bit biased. Right? I'm okay that you believe that's not the worst belief in the world, right? but don't do it based on one passage. So these things are clear in what they say, but are we going to base our entire position on homosexuality on two passages which are in a whole list of things where we've picked and choose, chosen on others? Right? So I'm not saying we can't go there. I do understand there are different positions. I just want you to realize that we have dropped a whole bunch of things in this Levitical Code. Right? So we have to be at least thoughtful about that. Okay? That's four. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, and 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, we're now in the New Testament. Notice we've jumped over the Gospels. Jesus doesn't talk about homosexuality whatsoever, interesting enough. Or do you know, no, sorry, do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be see- deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, and swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So again, it's reasonably clear. Except that it includes, for starters, things like being greedy. Anyone ever struggle with that one? Drunkards, anyone ever struggle with that one? Slanders, anyone ever said something negative about another person? Swindlers, anyone ever cheated on anything? Right? So do recognize, at least as a starting point, that you need to embrace this list of people. Right? I'm not making any judgment on you. The first three you notice that. You'll have to decide that for yourself. But, right, how do we look at this list and not say that kind of stuff that I'm dealing with as well? And you see there's a little A there behind men. Yeah, you can see that too. It's a footnote. The footnote on this passage and on the 1 Timothy 1 passage, for, by the way, is to the word translated homosexual or have sex relationships with men. These words are used incredibly rarely. So the way we interpret the Bible and translate the Bible is we find, okay, some of these words are really obvious. Love's all over the place, so we know how to translate love. When the translators came to this word, they said, well, it seems like part of the word is man and part of the word is sex, so probably it's sex with men. Probably. Right? So interestingly enough, when someone like John Chrysostom, who's actually a uh, biblical scholar of years after the Bible was written, Right? It's good as I get on dates. Sorry, history people. Um, John Chrysostom quotes that word and uses that word that's used here for homosexuality, and he never references homosexuality when he's talking about that. It seems it might have had a very different meaning. Right? So, again, this clearly in English speaks against homosexuality, but recognize that's on pretty fuzzy, shaky ground in terms of the word that's actually used in both of these passages. All right. And then 1 Timothy 1.10, similar kind of a thing. For the sexually immoral, those practicing homosexuality, slave traders, liars. Shoot, I hate it when they stick that one in there, right? And perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Same kind of conversation. So that's six of the seven. The seventh one is Romans 1, 26 to 27. Because of this, Interestingly enough, Romans 1.20 is where we get the whole idea of uh, general revelation from. Paul says, people are without excuse because the world clearly shows us that God exists and that he's powerful. Right? Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men were also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Nicholas Walterstorff, when talking about this, says, you've got to recognize as you read this that this is a pretty over-the-top corrupt circumstance that he's talking about, right? It doesn't mean it doesn't say what it says, right? But recognize, right, that these are people who it seems to be saying had a natural desire for heterosexual relationships, right, but gave them over. It's, this, this looks like disobedience. This looks like people going... You know, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to, I'm going to go try all kinds of stuff. I'm going to do whatever I can and try and get a thrill, and so I'm going to give up these relationships for those. It doesn't sound as much like people saying, man, I discovered that right off the bat, basically, I was attracted to people who are the same gender as me and had to deal with that, right? Again, I'm, I'm, I want us to understand that however we have this conversation, however we conclude about this as a community, right, 
there's a difference between people growing up with an experience that they're attracted to the same sex and saying, how in the world do I deal with that as a follower of Christ? Right? That's our community. As opposed to, right, things that go kind of in the direction of gay pride. Right? I know lots of gay people have no use for gay pride. Gay pride is an exhibitionist kind of an experience. Right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about recognizing that people are struggling with, I feel this attraction. I want to follow Jesus. What do I do with that? All right? That's the kind of community we're trying to work with. I want you to recognize from these seven passages that the Bible's not nearly as clear as I say it is in my book, God Loves Chaos, available for me in my office. It's messier than that. I was really struck as I listened to Peter, as I listened to um, that other guy, I'm really good with names today, <laughs> and as I studied these passages again and thought, wow, this is, this is a tougher issue. I think women in office is way less clear than this, right? It's way messier. I'm only saying that because we've already passed that one, so I don't have to. Are we opening that can of worms again, anyone? So these are tough things, and, and, and you know, maybe you don't know, when women in office became a viable option in the Christian Reformed Church, the folks against it, which is kind of how we set up our political system, it's for and against, right? The folks against it said, yep, the next thing's going to be homosexuality. And so here I am kind of feeling like I'm coming out of the closet on that, knowing that I'm hurting some of you by what I'm saying. But at least asking that we have this conversation as openly, as truthfully, as we possibly can, because I know I'm looking around, I'm seeing all kinds of people who are connected to somebody who's really dealing with this, right? I became aware that what I wrote in my book, which was supposed to be more about beer and Bible than it actually was about homosexuality, that that offended somebody, right? And as I heard that, I thought, I, I, I want to read that again. I want to look further in this. I want to think about this. Because this is tough. I hope you've heard, I'm okay with you disagreeing with me about this. Right? I don't think this is a finished conversation by any stretch of the imagination. I just think it's one we need to have. Right? But there's one teaching that you may not disagree with me on. Sorry. This one. The clear teaching about love. 700 times in the Bible. Handily, almost exactly. It's not exactly 100. I mean, not exactly 700. 100 times more often. The Bible talks about its main topic. Right? So a new commandment I give you. Love one another. Remember, I, we talked about that a few weeks ago as well. Love works this way. If you're not feeling that I love you, whatever I'm doing is not love. All right? Now, it doesn't matter if you agree or disagree. I have had conversations from the perspective I think homosexuality is wrong with somebody who's struggling with, with homosexuality, right? And walked away and recognized there's a loving relationship there, right? You're able to do this even if you disagree. The bottom line is that's exactly the perspective, whatever your beliefs are, this is exactly the perspective we need to take is that I need to help everyone in this world, and in this context, people who are homosexual, know Jesus and connect with him. So our official position as a Christian Reformed Church is that being homosexual is not a sin. You could be born that way, that's just reality. Living it out or doing any kind of homosexual activity is. So if you know somebody who's same-sex attracted, have that conversation with them. Here's a simple question. How does that make you feel? Anyone know? Rejected. If you can't accept 
what's very core to my way of relating to other people, my sexual attraction, I don't feel accepted. Right? And here's the proof in the pudding. How many homosexual people are actually, you don't have to put up your hands, sitting here? I don't actually know that there are any, to be honest, so if you are, you may share with me at any time, but we know where they are because we're connected with them. Why aren't they in church? I suspect, I'm not sure, I want to start that conversation, I'm pushing you by taking this side of the argument, I suspect that what our world has learned about homosexuality, much like it did with a couple other topics, like the sun being the center of the universe, is going to challenge us to say, you know, when you reread the Bible, it might just be that we need to be a little more accepting. So the disease one, I know lots of people who've done kind of the healing ministry on people to try and pray homosexuality out of them. And Wendy Gritter can tell you a whole lot more of these stories because she used to do this for a living. It most often leaves them feeling more damaged and rejected. So I walk people through it because you know I do prayer ministry, right? And I'd gladly do prayer ministry with somebody who's dealing with same-sex attraction. But here's my suspicion, because it hasn't happened yet. My suspicion is that letting God lead, which is what we do in prayer ministry, we say, God, where do you need us to look at? What do you need to deal with? I don't think God would lead them to the place where, well, what you need to do is confess your same-sex attraction, and then you'll be healed. Right? I'm guessing, based on very limited experience, to be honest, that what they'd go to is, this is where the pain came to me because of how I was treated because of my... Um, sexual orientation okay so bottom line to each other we need to extend love grace acceptance encouragement embrace no matter what i'm asking that for myself because i've just now come out and said this is kind of how i see this right now i ask you to do that with each other as you agree and disagree and figure those kinds of things out And of course, most of all, I ask that you do that with people of all kinds of different sexual orientations and experiences and all those kinds of things. The bottom line is, can we show them that Jesus loves us and that our love, that his love flows through us into their lives? So we intentionally today thought we should have the meal of unity. This may be hard. So say you're completely in disagreement with lots of what I've said today and you happen to be sitting in the front of this section, you've got to come and receive communion from my hand. We may get a better, deeper experience of what it was like for Jesus to have the first communion with Judas and Peter and all of the other fraidy cats who ran away when Jesus was in trouble. Right? In the midst of a moment of incredible, painful disunity, Jesus said, my body which is for you. I can't make you think or feel anything, of course. I just trust. By the way, it was a lot easier to come out of the closet than I expected. Because this community has deep unity that though I already know at least 10 names of people who probably don't like what I said, I know you'll have that conversation well. And I appreciate that. 
We're going to struggle with this whether we like it or not. Sorry for putting it on the table. Okay, I'm not. We need to go here, right, as a community and walk forward. Let's just pray for God to guide us. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your love. And thank you for a community where we've experienced enough of your love that we can handle a tough conversation. And Lord, help us to be honest with our thoughts, our feelings, our frustrations, both our celebration all the way over to our anger. And Lord, may we hold each other up. May we respect each other's thoughts and opinions. May we walk forward on this and may we most of all realize and experience what it means to be different, to think different, to feel different, and still to have your love at work in us, shaping us, guiding us. And this we pray in your holy name. Amen. One great place to have this conversation, of course, is this afternoon at 4 o'clock. We can have a small group, and if there's lots of you, we can have a large group conversation or a few small group conversations. And um, if Joss will let me, we can probably put this on the agenda at the congregational meeting if lots of people want to talk about it. But that's his decision. I'm just putting him on the spot as usual. Thanks, Joss. Our Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. The same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. It's our new relationship made in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This meal, as I've already said, is a meal of unity. It draws us together. We use these large loaves so we have more of an experience of taking from a common loaf and dipping into a common cup. This meal is also about the fact that We are people in need of healing and forgiveness for all kinds of different things. That's our solidarity. So however we understand a whole bunch of things, what we do understand together is we need to be fed. Fed a meal that forgives and heals and guides each one of us. Let's receive this together in that unity. The Lord blesses you and he keeps you. He makes his face to shine upon you and is gracious to you. The Lord our God turns his face toward you and gives you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.